0: Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Talked. To death On June 18th, 1984, Denver radio talk show host Alan Berg was assassinated in front of his house. His bullet-ridden corpse found in his driveway in a pool of his own blood. Berg was an acerbic, gonzo personality who was an equal-opportunity annoyer. Christian or Jew, liberal or conservative, white or black, NAACP or KKK. All were fodder for his popular radio show. He could be described as a cross between Groucho Marx and Tom Hanks' character in the film A Man Called Otto. A colleague once said of him, Meeting Alan for the first time was like seeing an eight-piece band come through the door playing out of tune. A truly one-of-a-kind individual, he never shied away from a debate, no matter how serious or mundane the subject was. On one program, he would spend an hour berating an anti-Semite caller or challenging a priest on the topic sex without pleasure. The next day, he would open the floor for a discussion on which way to roll your toilet paper, over or under. On that day, callers responded for hours. Some got so angry, they hung up. So, who assassinated Allen Berg? Was it as simple as an irate listener? Or was it something much more sinister? To help us answer that question, I turn to author and journalist Stephen Singular. His book on Allen Berg, Talk to Death, was used as background for the Oliver Stone movie, Talk Radio, written by and starring Eric Bogosian well welcome ladies and gentlemen to another episode of murder most foul the topic we're going to discuss today is talk radio and a very interesting case um, that is covered in a book called talked to death by steven singular and uh welcome today to murder most foul Stephen. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, Stephen, the subtitle of your book is The Life and Murder of Alan Berg. So before we discuss uh, the murder, let's talk about the life of Alan Berg. Give us a little background on Alan and his life.
1: Uh, Yes, Alan Berg was born in 1934 in Chicago. He grew up on Chicago's South Side, which is very racially mixed, uh, uh, very... uh, uh, racially mixed neighborhood. And I think one of the things that formed him was that he had a rather contentious relationship with his father. He felt that his father was somewhat racist against black people. I think it made Alan Berg very sensitive to the issue of racism. I think it made him somewhat ashamed. He called his father uh, an unforgivable dentist, which I thought was a good line. His the the family was Jewish, and he would he would he Almberg told me you know that his father would sort of pretend that he was a Gentile during the week, and then he would uh, go to temple on, on the weekends, and it was it was hypocrisy. I mean, that's was the was the key thing, and he went to the University of Colorado uh, in Boulder here. Um, and uh, he met a young woman named Judith Berg, and they became uh, lifelong companions. Uh, They were um, uh, married here, and then they went back to Chicago, and he started his working life as a lawyer. He got a, a law degree, and he was good at law. He was very good with language. He was very fast on his feet. And he began to get involved with some shady characters in Chicago, um, whether they had mob connections or things like that. And he was found himself in court arguing cases of people, the innocence for people whom he knew was guilty. And it, it began to bother him. It began to wear on him. Here's the hypocrisy in his father that he sees. And now he's engaging in a different kind of hypocrisy. And he began to drink. He would never drunk much before that, but he started to drink martinis. And, and he was just a really bad drunk. He, he, he got drunk quickly. He got out of control. He, he uh, said a lot of stupid things, and, and, you know, his behavior was just bad. Then he also began to have epileptic seizures, uh, grand mal seizures, which you – really lose control of your body, your, your mind, your mouth. And so for. here he was as a kind of young up-and-coming lawyer with a good career in front of him, and now he was drinking too much, having these seizures, and things were just going downhill. And they came, they decided to come back to Denver where Judith's family lived. Judith was from a prominent family in Denver, a very prominent uh, democratic family and uh, well established in the Denver area. And so he came back and he got a job, he loved clothes. He he liked to dress very well, um, very fashionably. He liked cars also, and he liked very fashionable cars. And so he came back and he got a job at a shoe store here in Denver in a rather nice neighborhood called Cherry Creek. And one day he was waiting on a, I think it was a black woman and a white woman came in and, and tried to uh, become first in line or, you know, establish a priority. Berg was very upset by it. Again, he had this particular sensitivity to racial prejudice, racial feelings, all of those things. And he uh, he made some comments and he got fired. <clears throat> so here he was in Denver, you know, 30 years old or so. Uh, couldn't hold a job in a shoe store. And he just really hit rock bottom. His wife, Judith, was always very, very supportive, very helpful for him. So he, just, he said, I'll bounce back. And he decided to open a, a shirt store. It was called The Shirt Broker. And he was uh, good at that. But it wasn't that fulfilling. And one day a man came in called, named Lawrence Grossman. And Lawrence Grossman had a show on the radio here in Denver, Uh, a talk show and this was in the early to mid 70s so talk radio was quite young and at least in this market and in most markets it was very tame it was very vanilla Uh, you know people didn't say a lot of controversial things it was very bland and Grossman could see that Berg just had a gift for talking. He was—he could just take off on any subject: music, art, politics, race, religion, sex, anything. He just had a strong opinion. He could articulate it, and he was.
2: This is Koa, Colorado's only news, talk, and and sports station. Line two, you're on KOA. I guess I agree with the man that was on the phone just the previous Good, well maybe you got something you care to present instead of just encircling it. Well, I probably do. Let's uh, try it, okay? A little bit ago, there was a gentleman appeared to be on the telephone. Uh, appeared from the telephone to be an elderly gentleman. His name was Edward. You talked to him for Oh, the days. man I called an idiot, yes. And you called and him? He an certainly idiot. Was, and he certainly was an idiot. Go ahead. Well, do you know what the opinion, do you know what the meaning of idiot is? Child, Here, I know the pure reasoning it's used. as I use it, obviously it is not used have, in that category. I have rather not use the word idiot than some of the word, four-letter words that are in the book because idiot denotes someone that has no brain at all. And I feel that... Well, sometimes people, the way the people act between wrestling not, fans it's and it's, him, I'm not sure anybody does have a brain.
1: He had a funny delivery. If you kind of think about Groucho Marx, if you're old enough in the audience to know who the Marx Brothers were and Groucho Marx was. He had one of the fastest, funniest deliveries ever in comedy and and films. And uh, a lot of self-deprecating humor, making fun of himself. His most famous song was, I'd never want to belong to a club that would have me as a member. Berg had kind of that same gift for gab. And Morris Grossman said, you know, why do you want to come on a radio show some Sunday afternoon? And, uh, of course, Sunday afternoon is the worst time in the world for radio uh, in most markets, at least at that time. Denver is known for its football team, the Denver Broncos. I think the Broncos are playing. It was in the fall. And the Broncos are the religion in, in Denver. And Brad Bird came on, so virtually nobody's listening. You know, it's a, it's a pretty minor event and he uh, starts talking you know grossman probably feeds him these softball questions or inquiries and bergs takes off on you know religion etc immediately controversial the phones light up and uh and he just you know, he's just a natural at stirring things up via the radio there. I'm a long, lifelong radio nut, having grown up in a very small town in rural Kansas. And radio is sort of my lifeline to the to the world. And that's how I got to Berg. I moved to Denver in 1981. He'd been on the air for about seven, eight years. He'd gone through a, some really bad periods in that time. He, he had somebody locally had encouraged him to just be really offensive and abrasive on the air. And he had taken that up and he was hanging up on people and yelling at people and, um, just not, not doing good radio, but it it got ratings and and they, toward the end of the seventies, there was a contest in Denver who's the most liked and most disliked personality in the Denver market. And he won both awards. And that was sort of his who he was, something to offend everyone, something to appeal to everyone, but you 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 came back and tuned him in because you know he, you never knew what he was going to say, and I don't think he knew. It.
0: In a sixty minutes interview recorded about a month before he was murdered, Alan Berg admitted as much to Morley Safer and then offered a wry comment that was predictive of something yet to come.
1: Isn't there something a little dangerous about this kind of broadcasting?
2: There is a danger, I agree with you. But I think that's the danger that we exhibit in all, uh, all rights of free expression, be it columnists who write newspapers. Yeah, indeed, but, but you say yourself, you often go on there, you don't know quite what you're gonna say. Hopefully it's... my legal training will prevent me from saying the one thing that will kill me. <laughs> and I've come awfully close.
1: Yeah, and he had another show called The Suntan Show, and he would contend humorously that white people get suntans because they really want to be black. And, of course, this would stir everything up. You know, Denver is a pretty conservative market. It's not so much maybe today. Well, it is still today, but, um, you know, it was not – that uh, up on guard let us say Uh, so in the late 70s he had a very severe series of epileptic seizures he had to go to the hospital they essentially opened up the top of his head as you as if you think of like a can opener opening a can went in took out the tumor the surgeon doctors said you know he, he he might not Ever really recover? He might not walk. He probably won't talk. If he talks, he'll probably have you know brain damage or verbal damage. You know, two weeks later, he's talking like a magpie. You know, he's up and moving. Uh, he uh, uh, was soon back on the radio, blabbing as never before.
2: Wise, wait, wait, are you fine. telling me because he was black? Okay, here's the official. I really didn't know. I'm glad I didn't know this. I really am. No, I, I did not know this man was what black. What okay. happened if it had been reversed? Okay, fine. A okay, now I'm. what do you think? Excuse me, this has now come. I am now, and this is the most refreshing thing that's probably ever happened to me. I have approached this entire thing without knowing that race was involved in this thing, okay? Now I know he's black. Excuse me. Excuse me, dear. I now know that he's black and she's white. That's correct? This has been on the news. Honey, I'm not asking you what was on the news. I'm telling you what I came in with. I did not know he was black and I did not know she was white. And I'm thrilled to death that I didn't. All right, now that you do, now that I know. Now what is the question? Now, what do you think as a lawyer, and I believe that you were a very noted lawyer and could have even was. better if you'd wanted to pursue it. Thank you. But if she'd have been black and shot her white husband five times in the face, what do you think would happen? I don't know because it would depend again on the judge hearing the case. I don't think any judge taking anyone's life in this fashion should give this light a sentence. The fact that he was black, he shows in fact the absence of a racist attitude going into this case. Thank you for your call. I made the point. I'm glad, I'm glad I went through all this without knowing this, because this has been, to me, even more refreshing without even getting into this as an issue of race. Now it becomes an issue of race. Now I can hear all the other aspects coming up. We'll be back with more conversation right after news on KOA Denver.
1: By the early 1980s, he had gone through a progression of small radio stations, and he had calmed down somewhat, and he was becoming more... Um, just a better talk show host, more the yelling, the hanging up, much of that stuff had tapered off. And he was hired by the biggest, best radio station in Denver, which is called KOA, which is a 50,000 or 100,000 watts at night, I think. And it had the capacity to reach 38 states. Mm. So that goes to the Midwest and then all, all over the West Coast, and it covered a lot of territory and especially at night. So he, uh, he had argued from time to time with various uh, KKK people or white supremacist people. There was a man in Denver named Fred Wilkins who was the head of the local KKK and bird sort of tangled with him on the radio. Wilkins came down to the station Um, burst in, you know, pointed his hand at Berg and said, you're going to die. He had built up a reputation for taking on racists very directly and uh, on the air. And There was another man in Denver named David Lane. David Lane was, uh, I think, a more uh, severe racist, white supremacist than Fred Wilkins was. Um, Lane came from a somewhat impoverished background. He lived in Denver. He would listen to Berg. He would call up. They would argue on the radio. And... Lane liked to provoke him, and Berg would provoke right back. So Berg's career was definitely growing. By 1982, 1983, I wrote an article about him for the Denver Post, and and they came out in late 1982, spent time with him in the studio, watched him do a show. The most memorable moment in the show for me was that a best-selling a uh, mystery novelist from New York came to Denver and she was a big deal in in the publishing world and you know sold a lot of books, etc. And she was on a book tour and was passing through Denver. And what happens in these situations as people may or may not know is that nobody reads the book. You know, you you provide the host with a list of questions the publicist provides it, so you can go through the list of questions, and the guest knows what they're going to be asked, so they're ready. The hostess, she came into the studio, and she was kind of full of herself, and very picked up on that instantly. You know, he was—he had the antenna of a very uh, smart creature. So he took the questionnaire, question, and he tore it up. Just threw in the trash and said, you know, I don't care about any of that. Tell me who you are, you know. I want to know about you, you know, who you are as a human being. And it was, you know, she was like totally taken aback. Like, who is this guy, you know. (laughs) And uh, then they had a good conversation. But that's, you know, spontaneity was a lot of what he did.
0: Sidebar. That author that got the full Allenberg treatment was none other than Judith Krantz. She was a magazine writer and fashion editor who turned to fiction as she approached the age of 50. Her first novel, Scruples, published in 1978, quickly became a New York Times bestseller and went on to be a worldwide publishing success translated into 50 languages. Scruples, which describes the glamorous and affluent world of high fashion in Beverly Hills, helped define a new supercharged subgenre of the romance novel, the bonkbuster, buster, or sex and shopping novel. She also fundamentally changed the publishing industry and became a superstar of fiction by becoming one of the first celebrity authors through her extensive touring and promotion. I probably doesn't count on The Ellenberg Show.
1: In September of 1983, a group of men, nine men, uh, led by a man named Bob Matthews from Arizona, moved north up to the Hayden Lake, Idaho area, up near the Canadian border, um, had become in contact with the Aryan Nations compound. The Aryan Nations compound was run by a man who called himself Reverend Richard Butler, which preached a very racist, very anti-Semitic, uh program platform whatever you want to call it in a church they had a school they had a firing range where they would go out and shoot at cutouts of uh jewish figures or six pointed stars and uh it began to attract young people who were more radical even than than richard butler And the young radicals felt that people like the KKK and the Aryan Nations and some others just talked all the time. It was all talk. They didn't really do anything to advance the white power revolution that the young men wanted. All of them were familiar with a book that came out in 1978 called The Turner Diaries. The Turner Diaries were written by a man named William Pierce, he used a pseudonym of Andrew McDonald in publishing the book. The Turner Diaries is a very, very racist, anti-Semitic fictional fantasy novel about a very small group of white young men uh, led, led by Earl Turner, or Earl Turner is one of them, uh, who decided to start a white power revolution and they create something called The Order. The Order is the, little, is the real core group of the white power revolutionaries. And they get together and they're going to carry out their revolution. And they, in the novel, they... he was also an absolute disaster in the studio. He, uh, there are certain things you're supposed to do. Keep the microphone a certain distance from your lips. When he got to, when he talked when he got animated, he would flail his hands a lot. He would knock the knock the microphone up toward the ceiling. He was a constant smoker, constant coffee drinker. He'd spill coffee all over the desk. He'd light fires in the wastebasket. He put out he put on the or still lit cigarettes in the wastebasket. They'd have to call in the fire department. I mean, he was just. And if he got upset about something, he'd leave the studio and go out in the parking lot. I mean, he was—he he was a live wire.
2: Except, I think you'd be doing better things than filling gas tanks for a few weirdos, don't you? Why don't you think? Why don't you? Why is he going around? Why is he going around healing crippled, sick people? You know what? What? Why don't you believe God? About God. Why? I ask you a question. Okay. Is is God spending his time filling gas tanks? God spends his time doing for his people what they... I see. Well, how about the people I know who desperately believe in him and have always believed him, who are terminally ill from cancer, who are crippled, deformed, what have you? Why is God not spending his time fixing them instead of filling your nerd gas tank? Have they asked for healing? Oh, all day long, dear. Do they have faith? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh yeah i know lots of them to do and they die while they're big you don't know the people that you mean he's spending his time filling gas tanks god does everything everything it's amazing did he hire me here at koa Huh? does he do my show no because he don't believe oh come on isn't that ridiculous
1: he was succeeding and he was building a reputation beyond the you know just just the denver market in 1984 early january he was featured on 60 minutes as one of three or four talk show hosts talk show talk radio was had obviously reached the the uh, media consciousness and was becoming an influential uh, media platform uh, especially people who were controversial and he he was and uh morley safer interviewed him and it was was a good interview i think it was there that Berg used the phrase talk radio is the last neighborhood in town
2: it's the last neighborhood in town people don't talk to each other anymore talk radio is the last place for them to hear human voices so many people are isolated today they don't have a chance to communicate
1: You know, people are isolated. People aren't interacting like they used to. uh, And it's a chance to just get together, kick it around, chop it up, chew it up. You know, uh, and and it was a great phrase, the last neighborhood in town, uh, which was used in the Oliver Stone movie uh, poster that came out. Kill millions of people and and uh, take over the government, which they refer to as ZOG, Z-O-G, which stands for Zionist Occupied Government, as one aspect of their anti-Semitism. And, uh, and they triumph in their fantasy novel. It's a very bloody, very disturbing piece of work. Bob Matthews was the leader of what would become the actual order they read the book and they said well let's create our own real life order nine men one of those men is david lane the david lane who had argued on the radio with alan Berg over the years about race etc and so the order they decided to they needed money to finance their burgeoning revolution. And so they did some robberies, started doing some counterfeiting, uh, got together some money, uh, robbed a, a store in Seattle, some other things. But then they decided to take it up to assassination, political assassination. We want to assassinate uh, particularly, prime, you know, Jewish people. And they had targets like Henry Kissinger, uh, Norman Lear, the television producer. But they said, well, let's, let's start, you know, maybe with somebody not that well-known, you know, who could we take out? And David Lane said, I know just this guy in Denver who's always stirring it up and who doesn't, you know, who's always taking on people like us uh on the radio and they said okay so they enlisted a woman named jean craig who was from wyoming uh 100 miles or so from from denver to come down and do surveillance on burr and they they you know watched where he worked when he came to work he was now on in the morning 9 to 12 i believe when he came to work when he left work where did he go where did he live how did he what were his what were his patterns around denver they made a plan and on uh june 18th 1984 four men came to denver david lane Bob matthews um, one of the order members richard scutari and bruce pierce who was a real hothead young man from kentucky and he had had some mental health issues uh, in his background he he was the most volatile let's say of the four and he was primed for action so on the night of june 18th a monday night uh, 1984. Allenberg and his ex-wife, now Judith, they've been divorced for six years, but they were still very close. Uh, <clears throat> went to dinner, dinner in Denver, in a suburb, and they came back. And uh, on the way, he stopped and bought some dog food and some shaving cream and some things like that. And he pulled up in front of his townhouse. The busiest street in Denver that runs right through the heart of it is called Colfax. And uh, and this was, he lived a half a block south of Colfax Avenue, and so he he parked in front of his townhouse, and he and Judith discussed will she come in and spend the night or will he take her to her car, and their entire relationship was about trying to make a decision one way or the other: should they get married again or stay divorced? You know. After a while, they, he said, I'll take you to your car. I got to get up and go to work in the morning. And, uh, you know, one of the subjects for tomorrow's show will be gun control. And if you, you know, if the show, if you listen to the show, Judith, then it gets a little slow, call me and stir it up. That's what they did. And so he turned to her car. She drove off to where she would be staying. And he drove back to his townhouse and he pulled in the driveway and he parked his Volkswagen and Bruce Pierce was waiting in the driveway with a Mac 10 semi-automatic pistol. And he shot Berg 12 times in the torso and near the face and instantly killed him. And the iconic image of this event was Allen Berg, one leg is in, still in the Volkswagen. The rest of his body is lying on his driveway in a pool of blood.
2: Excuse me, Barry. Barry, Mr. Champlain. I hate to bother you. Do you think you could give me an autograph, please? Some show tonight.
1: Sure. Uh, what you say your name was? You're
2: dead, fucker.
0: and in a disturbing example of art imitating life that clip is the final scene in talk radio where the Allenberg-inspired character, Barry Champlain, is gunned down by someone posing as a fan seeking an autograph. This from the pages of the book, Talk to Death, by Stephen Singular. On the way home, he lit a palm Mall, which he was still smoking, when he reached his driveway and stepped from the Volkswagen. At 9.41 p.m., When police found the cigarette, it was smoldering near Berg's blood. An autopsy report would one day describe how the course of the bullets through his torso had been hard to estimate because his body was twisting at the time he was shot. Two slugs struck near the left eye and exited on the right side of his neck. Others hit the left side of his head and exited from his neck and the back of his skull. 67 minutes after Berg was officially pronounced dead at 9.45 p.m., Bob Matthews called from the Denver Motel 6 to his home in Medellin Falls to announce the success of the mission. The next morning, the order left town. Back at KOA Radio, one of Berg's colleagues, Ken Hamlin, spread the news to the audience
1: 10:39 KOA time and we're I'm still trying to piece information together um, off the air I'm finding out that channel 7 has issued a report that said the best um, investigative efforts of the DPD has indicated that someone passing in a vehicle using a semi-automatic weapon or an automatic weapon I'm not sure which fired upon Allenberg when he was exiting his vehicle in front of his home um, ten or more shell casings to the best of my ability or uh, a number that would indicate an automatic weapon was found in the at the scene and Allenberg has in fact passed on he is no longer with us
0: And uh, who discovered him?
1: So he was, Allenberg was lying in the driveway, dead in his own blood, and uh, a passerby came by not not too much later uh, and found him, and they called 911. And the reason I said earlier that he was, uh, this is a half a block from the busiest street in Denver, it's... Three days away from the start of summer, it's nice weather, people are out, people are walking, they're moving around, driving. No one saw anything. Someone would later report that they heard something that sounded like uh, fireworks or a chain being rattled, but nobody saw anything. The Denver police uh, thought initially that this is just some lone listener that Berg had really angered and, you know, decided to seek revenge. Um, the guy leading the uh, investigation, his name, the police officer, his name, Don Mulnix. And there's, he had a great quote about the case. They ask him, you know, do you have any suspects? And he said, he pointed to the Denver phone book, which was pretty thick. (laughs) And he said, yeah, everyone in there,
0: (laughs) this guy annoyed everybody. (laughs) You um, have a chapter heading in your book uh, entitled, A Quiet Death, A Loud Grave. Um, What does that mean?
1: His death was a complete shock to the Denver media community. And the outpouring of love and uh, grief was huge. And people would not have expected it. He, his service at the Temple Emanuel, his memorial was overflowing. People were asked to drive with their lights on as a tribute to him in the daytime. And they did. And Allenberg said, I think he said to me, I'm an addictive personality. I'm addicted to coffee, I'm addicted to cigarettes, and I addict you to me. And it was true. People who liked him tuned in, people who couldn't stand him tuned in because they wanted to know what he was gonna say or do. And in death, a lot of that came out. He was, to my knowledge, the first assassination of a media personality for simply exercising the right to free speech. He wasn't profane. He, he wasn't like Howard Stern. He didn't focus a lot on sex and, and all that stuff. He liked to talk about serious issues. And his memorial was conducted, and he was laid to rest in Chicago. And there's never been anybody remotely like him ever since in the Denver market, and I doubt in a lot of other markets. He was unique. He was incredibly funny and lively and just something that couldn't be replaced. Denver became a more conservative radio market after Berg, with, any, with their various stations and various hosts. And, you know, before long, Rush Limbaugh was the, you know, big voice, the, the syndicated voice, of course, but, and many other Sean Hannity and O'Reilly, Bill O'Reilly. And, you know, they just sort of took over the local market. And, and that was a loss. And, you know, because it wasn't counterbalanced with much of anything else.
0: How did the authorities uh, uh, get on to uh, Matthews and, and the order?
1: The order, led by Bob Matthews, would go on and, and uh, rob a Brinks truck near Ukiah, California, and they got $3.6 million. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but Matthews made a mistake and left behind a firearm at the scene and uh and of course a lot of these young aryan warriors the group had grown to about 25 now core hardcore members they were some were vietnam veterans some had prison records they were not they were somewhat downtrodden you know working class young men and you know, you know what happens when you get $3.6 million all of a sudden, you kind of want to spend it. And so they went out and they bought cars and they bought houses and they bought, people can track, you know, it's a lot easier to track you if you're spending a lot of money. And so anyway, the, the first break in the case came when they, when they uh, found the gun and began to trace it back to one of the members of the, of the group and the group had committed uh, uh, crimes in oregon they had committed crimes in washington state they had counterfeited money and and had distributed the money to be spent they had obviously committed the murder in denver and they killed one of their other associates a man named Walter west and uh the feds were starting to see this as a as a pattern of cr- criminal behavior. And they began to track and trace some of the members. The break, the real break in the Berg case came when they figured out that one of the members of the order was a man named Gary Yarbrough. who lived near Sandpoint, Idaho, not too far from Aryan Nations compound. He had a criminal record and he had been recruited by the Aryan Nations compound to come north and and, uh, join them. He was living in uh, uh, this house, rural area. And on October 18th, 1984, which is four months to the date to the day after Berg was killed, the Feds raided his home. Um, he escaped, but they went into, you know, went through his whole house, obviously looking for evidence. And they entered a room upstairs that held thousands of rounds of ammunition, guns, a shrine to Adolf Hitler, and a Mac Ten semi automatic firearm, which they tested ballistically and found that this was the murder weapon that <laughs> for allen Berg. this is the gun that killed allen Berg mm-hmm. and so the case was the case was unraveling. Uh, Bob Matthews escaped their notice for a while. Um, he he fled to uh, Woodby Island, which is just, I believe, it's north of Seattle, uh, an island there near a town called Green Bank. Mm-hmm. And he holed up in a in a home there. And the federal government, federal agents, surrounded it. Law enforcement completely surrounded it. You know, told him to surrender. He had firearms. He just opened fire. And I think of a scene in a movie just standing there firing away out the windows. They dropped uh, some sort of flammable material on the house and they burned it down as the fire's burning. He's blazing away with his guns. Uh, the house was destroyed and his body his charred very very charred body was was located in the rub there were always stories of course that he escaped and he's out there somewhere but they identified him through dental records and that was him bruce pierce uh fled to across the whole country to georgia where he was arrested Uh, David Lane fled to North Carolina, where he was uh, taken into custody. All of them, except for Matthews, who obviously was dead, went to went on trial in Seattle in the fall of 1985. Um, They had committed or were charged with 240 federal crimes. Again, if you think about this, in terms of criminal behavior, nine men decide to start a white power revolution against the United States government. That's a pretty uh, ambitious thing to do. Uh, 240 crimes, around $4 million uh, stolen. Five people were killed. Beyond to beyond Allen Berg and Walter West, three other people died. Uh, unknown amounts of counterfeited money. They uh, did a lot of damage for a small group of people, and they put the federal government to quite a test in rounding all of them up. By the time they got to trial, they called themselves in German Bruderschweigen, which means silent brotherhood. But of course, when it comes to getting arrested, and prosecuted, some not everybody tends to remain silent. And about half of the 25 decided to testify against the other half. In federal court, those who went on trial were all convicted of under what is interestingly, they were not convicted of murder or robbery or counterfeiting, they were convicted under a statute that was created to prosecute organized crime, which is the RICO statute. Um, the RICO statute was specifically designed for to prosecute organized crime mafia activities. But when the government looked at this, they said, this is organized crime. That's what this is more than anything else. And it was a very effective strategy because it was one trial. It wasn't, they didn't have to try a dozen Or 15 people which would be unbelievably complex and expensive and they were the main people pierce lane um all of them were convicted given 40 basically 40 to 60 year sentences which were essentially death death sentences for the older ones in the group and uh And Some have, you know, died in federal prisons.
0: But their influence on the radical uh, fringe did not end when they went to prison.
1: Their legacy did not die. The next person who came along, who of prominence, who studied the Turner Diaries, was a young man named Timothy McVeigh. And one of the chapters or incidents in the Turner Diaries is about, I don't know if it's Errol Turner or one of the other people, but they get a truck, they fill it with explosives. They take it to a federal building and park it at nine in the morning, they detonate the truck and kill a lot of people. As we all know, on April 19th, 1995, Timothy McVeigh took a rental truck full of explosives, parked it in front of the Murrah building, Alfred Murrah building in Oklahoma City, and killed 168 people men, women, and children. what the order imagined in the future was that there that computers would come online and be commonplace in households that I don't know that they ever imagined the Internet, but they certainly imagined home computers and computer networks and so what they they had hoped was you know one day they could be connected because it's a far easier way to communicate you can do it more secretly at least in the early days of the internet and so now you have white supremacists all over the united states and around the world actually who share information um share plans etc cetera, etc cetera. and uh William Pierce, the author of the uh, Turner Diaries, would go on to use the internet to put out his information. They would put out music called hatecore, which is very racist, etc. Music, writings, messages, all of those things that of course, technology has brought on in the last 30 years. So when we see certain events that have occurred very recently in the United States, as in Charlottesville in 2017, where you have white supremacists gathering in Charlottesville to protest the removal of the statue of Robert E. Lee, Confederate General. Uh, all of these people are using that technology. All of them are connected much more than, than in the past. I mean, these are people marching through the streets saying Jews will not replace us and other uh, racist anti-Semitic things. And I so the Berg story resonates into the future really strongly. It's not, you know, we've seen in the past few months some very well-known people making anti-Semitic comments or maybe uh excusing this behavior for lack of a better term uh it's all distressing it's all disturbing and it's all unacceptable from my point of view <laughs> you know, i i started writing about this in 1984 and this is so that's about 39 years ago and i went, the the real bigger story of all of it is that again to repeat you go from nine men in the ida in the woods talking about a white power revolution to have not are not very recent in our recent past talking about white nationalism in the white house that's the arc of this story and that's what I wrote about in twenty seventeen ABC News and Washington Post did a survey and they wrote about, you know, percentage of the people would hold ideas that might fit under this umbrella. And I and I think the number was nine nine percent. That's a lot of people. That's a lot more than nine people. <laughs> and so the whole growth of media that sort of tacitly indulges in this kind of thinking, you know, is something that, that has become more prominent in our culture. And we saw elements of it in, in the January 6th, 2021 insurrection in Washington. I'm not painting all of the people involved in that with one brush, but there are elements of it that surface Again and again and again, whether it's it's people sort of saying this is okay when it's not okay, whether people are committing acts of violence, all of it uh, is something that, that we
0: need to be aware of. Well, well, thanks, Stephen. I don't think I could have said it better myself. Uh, I want to thank you for joining us today on Murder Most Foul. Uh, spending almost an hour with us has been a fascinating discussion of someone who I was not familiar with. But you know what? I think if I were listening to the radio in Denver back then, I probably would have listened to him. He sounds like my kind of guy. Um, and also what is, again, frightening, as you point out, is the residence of what was going on at that time is still... Uh, with us today, uh, some 40 years uh, later. So why don't you tell my audience uh, where they can uh, contact you? I'm assuming you have uh, an email, I mean, a, uh, well, email, but you probably have a website.
1: Yes, the website is stevensingular.com S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S-I-N-G-U-L-A-R.com.
0: So thank you, Stephen. And that wraps it up. For us today, for another episode of Murder Most Foul, I hope you enjoyed it, and if you do, I hope you tell your friends. Uh, comments can be left on the website via the email link that's there, and the address is www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, .com. So today, why don't we go out with just a little more
2: of Allen Berg. Well, I just want to ask you something. You're a reborn Christian. You believe in Jesus. Do You think Jesus stopped off, spent seven hours with Oral Roberts, saying, "Let's work out your books. Here's how much you got to raise, Oral, and I got to get on my way." No, hmm? oh, oh no. Now, do you okay? What do you think, Oral? I, I mean, need Oral to read Roberts. To read. Wait a minute. Oral Roberts says to you, "God visited me for seven hours." Is he psychotic? Is he crazy? Or is he telling the truth? <laughs>